Happy Mother's Day again, and I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. Uh, the first thing I want to assure you of that uh, my topic this morning is with uh, the problem of evil in the world, and it has nothing to do with Mother's Day. Uh, our mother-in-laws. Uh, you know, as a guy, I can testify to my whole journey with my wife in learning a lot about motherhood. When uh, I grew up in a home, my mother was a clean freak. I mean, I walked in the house, and she was on her knees behind me in the kitchen floor cleaning up whatever dirt I tracked in from football practice. And, I mean, we just, uh, I can still remember every week, she cleaned our windows in our every house. I mean, every window. And uh, then I got married to my wife, and uh, I was a pastor before we went overseas. And I'd come home, and there'd be dirty dishes in the sink, and there'd be unwashed clothes. And, you know, being a young man filled with myself, I'd often remind her, of the importance of keeping, you know, doing these tasks. And uh, she, she just seemed to ignore me. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've got a little problem here with this thing staying on, we'll get it. Uh, I can remember at some point uh, in our relationship that uh, I felt God spoke to me through his Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, if you're so concerned about the dishes and the laundry, why don't you just do them? And I remember my first thought is, thanks a lot, God. I mean, that's, you know, that's a terrible idea. But, you know, essentially, I decided that, well, that could be my contribution. Uh, you know, I realized that, you know, with two little children, one of them being your pastor, who was a particularly difficult child, uh, with two children growing up in the household, and I know moms have four or five or six sometimes, or even more, uh, it was quite a challenge. And uh, so, you know, I do the dishes. And what I've learned over the years is I'm very task-oriented. Any task that's before me, it's hard for me to take time and relax, relax if I have a task to do. My wife is people-oriented. So strangely enough, our children always became before or came before dishes. That's a strange thing. For those of you who are task oriented. But what I've learned is, is that she much better models the heart of God in her care and compassion as a mom than I did. And so uh, I, I just, I recognize uh, for the moms who, you know, have children uh, today. And uh, my daughter is uh, a single mom. And we just got back from Hilton Head. And uh, we had a little place, we got the cheapest place we could find on Hilton Head because I'd rather go to the cheapest place in Hilton Head uh, than go to Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach to me is like Walmart on Midnight Madness on Christmas Eve. I don't want to go. And uh, so we packed four children into this, and I was reminded that four children can make a mess in a hurry. And so I can't, we got back yesterday, and uh, I'm ready for a vacation <laughs> uh, to kind of get over that. But I want to pray for the moms and the grandmoms this morning because I'm so, I owe such a great debt of gratitude to a mom who chose her children even over her pestering husband. <laughs> and I want to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, for the women who are hurried, who face pressure, who don't know sometimes 
where their next step or their resources are going to come from. For these women who have jobs and responsibilities and tasks, Father, I pray for all the promises of God for them today. I pray for the mothers that they would have wisdom what to say no to, what to say yes to, when to discipline and when to remain silent, when to encourage. I pray for patience because if they don't have it, they're going to need it. I pray for the love, but not the love that runs out of our own inner heart. That, Father, for all of us, and I know for moms, there's a time that there's just nothing left to give. I pray for the resource of the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit that now lives in them. That in their tiredness, they would hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That all with all the tasks that they have, they would remember the priority is that little life of that child that you have so graciously given to them. So, Father, we pray for our moms. We know that some have had complex, difficult relationships. We pray for healing where that exists. We pray for forgiveness where that exists. And for those of us who are men, who are married to women, we pray that we would learn better how to serve our wives because, Father, that's how Christ led the church, by serving her. Help me to be the man that my wife deserves. Help me to be the man that Christ would want me to be to her. And, Father, I ask this so that the children and my grandchildren might see your glory in us, oh God, more than anything that I would not fail in their eyes as I have often. But Father, I pray that they would see the kindness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 74 is a particular interesting text. It is, it is a person that in the Old Testament would have been a follower, a close follower of God. Uh, Asaph, who wrote eight of the Psalms, and the author is the author of this text, is the equivalent of our pastor Mike. I mean, he had the responsibility. He was appointed by David and a friend, a personal friend of David, uh, to lead the people of God, Israel, in worship in those times when they came together corporately and worshiped God together. They did that several times annually, uh, and of course, they did it often individually. Uh, but when they gather uh, as a group, they would often sing and worship together. And uh, to me, a worship leader uh, is like a, a jeweler. And if you've ever gone, I can remember when Heather and I went to uh, get her wedding ring to look at it. And uh, the jeweler got out black velvet, and he put the different stones uh, on the black velvet. And uh, later on, I found out is that because the light... Uh, on the diamond is more beautifully magnified through all the fractures and cut of the diamond uh, through uh, sitting on the black velvet. And so to me, a worship leader is a man or a woman who has responsibility to display the glory and the beauty of God before the congregation. Quite a task. And uh, it's, it's one that Asaph had. But what Asaph is doing is because of his exalted position 
he, he was a man who was well aware of the world events. And, and the world was filled with violence during the time of David. I did a little research this week thinking about this passage because I'm so troubled uh, by what I see going on in our world with the wars and the rumors of wars and, 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 and just the terrible situation. And, you know, we've, we've lived it. Uh, my wife and I have served in two countries as missionaries. Both of those countries were torn by a genocidal civil war. And we uh, grew used in some sense to ministering to people. Uh, often who had been through uh, events that we're seeing now portrayed on our television screen, neighbor murdering neighbor, people who had lived together uh, for years, now in cultural conflict killing one another. And uh, the first uh, place we were at, we were working in the United Refugee Camps, United Nations Refugee Camps, and you would have both, both groups, call them left and right, whatever you want to call them, they, they would come into the refugee camp, uh, put down uh, their arms when they came in, and uh, we were there to share the good news of the gospel. And then in another country, worked a lot with young people, especially college students we saw coming to faith. And as we began to share the goodness of God, almost invariably in both times, both places, uh, the question realistically would come up, if God is good, how do you explain evil? If God is good, how do you explain evil? And that is, that is a subject that I think in and Mike, to some degree, was referencing that this morning is, is we've kind of lived in what I would say is a la-di-da church in America for the past 40 years. We avoid any difficult topics in order to make sure that people leave feeling inspired and feeling encouraged and good about life. But, but I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, when I see men and women that are innocent, and I see little boys and little girls. I got out this morning and I saw where a school uh, had been bombed and 60 people had died uh, in that bombing uh, as you and I slept. When, when, when I, as a follower of Christ the King, the peace of glory, when I read those kind of things, and I know that those things have always been going on, it troubles me greatly. And, 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 I, and I struggle sometimes because I know that God doesn't want me in a continuous state of grieving. But it's very hard for me to separate myself as a follower of Christ from the suffering of the world. Even though it may not be in my home at the moment, it may not be in my neighborhood, it may not be in my community, it may even to, to the degree that we see now going on in the Ukraine may not be in our country. But it troubles me greatly. And I think that's how it should be for those of us who follow Christ. If you and I are the compassion of Christ, if you and I are the hands and feet in this generation, the hands that heal, the hearts that love, the lips that pray, and reach out to those who have no hope in situations of desperation, if we don't, if we don't have, at least if we don't struggle with, if we don't have some answers to the current evil that's going on in our world, then we have no hope. And therefore, the world has no hope. Only, only temporary political solutions. In doing some research this week, uh, you, you know, I've kind of grown up in a generation where I was very lucky. Uh, the Vietnam War had just ended when I graduated from high school, so I've never had to go to war. My father fought in the Second War. All the men I grew up with, uh, they were World War II veterans. Uh, several of them have had what we would call 
post-traumatic disorder. Uh, I can remember our, our fire marshal, uh, who was a good friend of our parents and our local community. He, all the time, he had this habit of just blinking, blinking, blinking. And, you know, children are pretty brutal. I asked my dad one time, at least I didn't do it to his face. I said, what's, what, what's wrong with, with Howard, Chief Fields? And he said, well, he's got, he's got, uh, uh, he's shell-shocked. And he was a Marine. And he was one of the guys who charged in on the islands in the Pacific. And he saw the bodies of his comrades, and he saw the bodies of the Japanese stacked up. And, and even though he lived a, a perfectly normal life, taught Sunday school, his, his life has been, had been traumatized by the violence that he'd seen in the world. Now, I escaped that. I didn't go to Korea. I didn't go to Vietnam. I didn't serve in Iraq. I didn't have to go to Afghanistan. And that's, the, that's, the, that's some of you did, but the vast majority of us, you know, that, those were all wars that were somewhere way far off. And if we weren't in effect, a family that was directly affected by that type of wickedness and that type of violence that exists in the world, uh, you know, it really didn't affect us. And so I just went back and I looked and I found out that according to statistics, that since the World War II, where we started the United Nations, which supposedly was to end all wars, there have been 356 global conflicts just since the end of second, the Second World War. One, one historian in, uh, in, 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 at Harvard has estimated in the 3,400 years of written human history we have, there have only been eight years without war. And he went on to say the reason we theorize that eight years is because we don't have a, a pure record. Our, our recollection is, the reality is, is that we have always been at war with one another. And even as a non-believer, uh, his, his, his basic judgment is, is, the, is the human heart in its essence has a tendency towards wickedness. Now, there's all kinds of gradients of wickedness. You know, I'm, I'm not as wicked as you are, and so I feel good about myself. You know, I've never killed anybody. I've just thought about it, but I've never killed anybody. So I feel good about it, you know, but I've got a problem with God almost immediately because God says he looks not only at my actions, but he looks at my heart. And maybe I've not always expressed hatred and anger, but sometimes I've, I've bottled up hatred and anger, but nevertheless, my heart has been a breeding ground for that which God says judgment does come. We don't have time this morning, but if we were to go back to Genesis 5 and the story of Jonah and the ark, Basically, what it says is God says, the earth was so filled with wickedness and violence, I had to bring it in. And the Bible tells us these two things that we see as competing tensions that I don't believe in reality are, but they are from our perspective. One is that God is a God of love, and the other is that God is a God of justice. And the Bible tells us clearly that God has both brought judgment and will bring judgment. This morning in the Ukraine, they are not crying out for mercy and grace. They are crying out for the justice of God. When you see the innocents that are slaughtered, when you see those who are bystanders or the little girl in Washington, D.C. who was asleep in her bed and a drive-by shooting happened and somebody was shot at and that bullet went in uh, to the body of that little girl as she slept. Her mother isn't really looking for grace. She's looking for justice. And she may be well crying out. The question is, where's God? How could God, if he's good, how could a good God allow 
this to happen. And the, strangely enough, Scripture is filled with answers. And sometimes the answers at, are at the end of dilemmas. And this is the situation in Psalms 73. And we're just going to quickly uh, walk through this psalm. And I want you to look at this with me as we quickly walk through it before we walk away, hopefully, with a few takeaways. So verse 1 in Psalm 73, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure heart, to the pure in heart. Now, this is an interesting phrase because actually the transliteration or the translation in some places it would literally say from the Hebrew that this text was written in, uh, it, God is good to those who have clarity. God is good in the eyes of those who have clarity. Now, I've lived in many places around the world where, you, you know, the first thing you learn living overseas is you don't drink the water. Uh, I mean, you don't, you know, when you get a glass of water and, 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 it, and you can see the paramecium swimming around inside of it, you know, you don't drink the water. I can remember when I went to see your pastor uh, when my first granddaughter, if you want, your, you want your grandparents to go to Indonesia, you have grandbabies. And so we went to see our first grandbaby when Chris and Cheryl were in Indonesia, and Chris said, do not drink the water. So the whole time there, I was thinking, do not drink the water. But one night, when I was tired and not thinking, I brushed my teeth with the water. And I spit the water out, and it, but something went down in my stomach because almost immediately my stomach went, and that was the beginning of about a three-day journey of learning the lesson of why you don't drink the water. What the Bible says is that all of us are cloudy. All of us are contaminated, some to different degrees. But if for all of us, most of us, living here on this planet, seeing what's going on right now, it's very difficult to have clarity. But Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 that one of the characteristics of the children of God is blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who walk through the valley, who walk through the darkness, but they, in that darkness and that valley, they have clarity. They understand what God is doing in this generation. And so almost 2,500 years ago, or maybe even more, this guy Asaph begins to write, look if you would at verse 2. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. And my steps nearly went astray. I want to pause for just a minute and just say this. If any of you that are here this morning are endeavoring to follow Christ and make sense out of the world that we live in, sooner or later, in desperation, you've got to ask the question, why? God, God is not fearful of your questioning of his sovereignty or his activity among man. But if we're honest with ourselves and we're proclaiming and all the songs we sang this morning were resonating with the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. But if God is good, then why? Why do we suffer? Why do we see this suffering? Why do we see this evilness? And then he goes on this litany of what he's seen in his generation. For Look at, look at verse 3. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he saw what people were getting away with. My wife and I, uh, coming back from Hilton Head, we, we stopped at a stoplight uh, when we got off the island. And I, I'm a car guy. I like cars. My wife learned a long time ago her job was to keep me off car lots because uh, I just like the smell of new, you know, I, well, with the cost of cars now, it's not an issue. But, you know, I, I, I've always loved cars. And in front of us, the car in front of us was a Lamborghini. 
And the car over next to us, over on the other side, was a Mercedes. And then there was a BMW, and man, we, we were surrounded. And, you know, and I was just so embarrassed to be in a Ford. <laughs> and I was thinking, what have these people done? What have they done to deserve this? And, and how can I get me a little of that? I mean, you, you drive around places. Most of us, and we, we see these homes. Uh, we, we, would, we, we took our grandchildren uh, uh, one day, I gave uh, my, my wife and my daughter for Mother's Day. I sent them out to a, a seafood restaurant so they could just enjoy some mother and daughter time. And I took the granddaughters. And the granddaughters, the granddaughters wanted to go shopping. Oh, God. So we're going, we're going in all these shops and shopping, and, and it's right by a marina. And I'm saying, now, which of these boats would you like? You know, they're all two or three million dollar boats and they're all laughing about, oh no, if it doesn't sleep 40 people, I wouldn't want to have one of these boats. And, and, you know, in my mind, I'm wondering, who makes this kind of money? Where do people get this kind of wealth? And we know that not all of it, but we, we know that a lot of it comes at the expense of the poor. We know a lot of it is by chicanery and, and by stealing and by doing things that are unethical. We know that that's the reality of the world that we live in. And this is what that guy is saying. There have been times in my life where I've just looked around me and it just seems like those who have everything are the ones who uh, are, are the worst. Let's pick up with the next verse. So it says in verse 4, uh, they have an easy time until they die. The dictators seem to get away with it. They they die in their refuges of wealth and splendor, and some of them just seem to die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. We, we see them on television, and they just seem to have it all together until they don't. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. You know, I don't know about you, but, but when I watch some of our world leaders... And, 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 and they're creating so much death and destruction, and yet they, they respond arrogantly with lies upon lies. And this is, this is the observation that's going on with this psalmist in this point in time. Their, their pride is like a necklace, and violence covers them like a, like a garment, and their eyes bulge out from fatness. Now that's, a good, that's a good illustration that we, we as Americans can't really identify with. Uh, you know, because we have Krispy Kreme. But, uh, you know, people, people for generations, you get up in the morning, you go work another man's land, he gives you a dollar, you go home, and you hope to be able to put food on the table. So most people are thin because they can't indulge in the way that you indulge in, in our, our prosperity. So the observation is, is that they've got something going on uh, that the rest of the world doesn't have. The rest of the world doesn't enjoy. And so there's a tendency towards jealousy. Uh, look at verse 8. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten uh, oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. They curse God. I had this conversation after uh, the first service, and a person came up to me and was saying, well, what about politicians 
who do this and do that? And how do you, how do you fit that into the biblical scheme? And, and I said, you've got to learn to discern between those who use religion to justify their evilness. We live in a world where man will quickly use religion to manipulate, conjole, control, and destroy other people. That's not God's heart, but that's, that's in the heart of man. And this is what he's saying. They just curse God. They have, they have no fear of God. They just kill people indiscriminately. And when you call them on killing people indiscriminately, they justify it. So, well, you know, thankfully, we're not involved in that in America. You know, my wife and I came home yesterday, and I, we unpacked, and I came into the room, and she was watching Father's Knows Best. Now, some of you would remember that. And uh, essentially, all those shows, like Dick Van Dyke, Father Knows Best, Andy Griffith, it's pretty, pretty, pretty clear themes. It was like, Mommy loves Daddy, Daddy loves Mommy, Mommy and Daddy love the children, and children love Mommy and Daddy. And so in, in, our, skeptical, in our skeptical generation, we would say that's naive. But it, what I realize now, it wasn't naive, it was aspirational. There was always evil in the world, but at least when we set our children to sit down and watch something, or we sat down to fill our minds, it was, it was, maybe, maybe our marriage wasn't that way, maybe our children wasn't that way, but it was aspirational towards moving towards better things. This is the way it ought to be amongst people. Mommies and daddies ought to love their children. Children ought to love their mothers and fathers. We should live in households of harmony because that's God's will for humanity. But now you turn on our television sets and I hear and I see where Christians are watching violence. And just like we see the, the imaginations of man, it, it's like who, how can we outdo the last show in wickedness? How can we kill people? How can we make it more graphic? And so as, even as the church members, we sit entertained by that which we may not participate in. But our eyes and our minds are filled with this culture of violence. We see that now overtaking our own country. In the shooting of our children in the schools, in the shootings, in the robberies, in the night, in just the, just the overt public uh, uh, attacks that Americans now do threatening one another. I mean, look, look if you would at verse 10. Therefore, his people turn to them. Who? The followers of God. His people turn to the wicked. And they drink in their overflowing waters. They say, I, I want a home like that. I, I want a car like that. How, how did they get these things? And how, can, I can I have a fourth of that? Can I have a half of that? Can I, can I just fudge a little bit over here? Can I just kind of put the righteousness of God on this side? Could, can I just do this and, and not receive the judgment of God? Look at them, the wicked. They, they're always at ease, they say. And they increase their wealth. And then that often leads to frustration to the people of God. Did, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Is this, is this my reward for following Jesus? Being the scorn at school, being the scorn in the office place, being the scorn in the community because I have chosen not to participate in any level of the darkness that we see in the world today. Not rejecting the people, but not embracing the darkness. He said, look, in verse 15, if I had decided to say these things aloud, 
I would have betrayed your people. You know what he's saying? It's like Pastor Mike getting up and saying, if I told you what I really thought sometimes, you'd fire me. That's brutal honesty. If I told you as a pastor and a missionary for 45 years, some of the thoughts that I've had, you'd fire me. Because that's a human dilemma. I mean, that's the way we are. We're tempted by the darkness that we see. We have that propensity towards that. Then he goes on and he says in verse 17, he had an experience. Verse 17, he says, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. And at this point, we see a radical transformation. And I want you to capture this before we leave. Something happened in his darkness. Something happened as he was searching. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, they believed that God only dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And so if you wanted to worship to God, you, you know, it was, it was like some people who believe you can only worship God in church. And so they would go and worship God. Well, somewhere in his experience, uh, on one Sabbath morning, uh, somehow something happened, and all of a sudden, his eyes, his views turned from what was going on in the world, in his own heart, and all of a sudden, his gaze was fixed on God. Now, what happened, what happened is he became aware of the presence of God. Now, church brothers and sisters in Christ, you understand right that we don't come to church to experience the presence of God because God is in you. Paul said in the book of Colossians, it is the glory of God, the hope of his glory in you, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go anywhere in order to experience his presence because his presence is always with us. And so this, this presence experience that he had radically transformed. Now, I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, I've seen three occasions that I've seen people radically transform the presence of God. Number one is from honest seekers. You know, sometimes we, we, we like the apostles, you know, Paul, we try to compel people to come to Christ. You know, it's, it's like, the, you know what the definition of an optimist is? An optimist is a person uh, if you grew up in an old Baptist church, when the pastor says we're only going to sing one more hymn, he, the, you actually believe that pastor when he says it. Well, you know, one more verse, one more verse. If anybody will come, just one more verse. We, 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 try to, we try to compel people to come to Christ. And every once in a while, as a pastor or a missionary, you know, I'd have a few people come up to me and say, how do I find God? And I'd go, whoa, whoa. And so I'd say that, that sometimes there are people who seemingly are honestly seeking God. But then I came across a verse one time that said that there's no one who seeks God. And what I discovered is, is in unraveling their stories, it was not never a matter that they were seeking God, but that God was pursuing them. God was seeking them, and they were just happening to come into my office or into my life to find out if I had any answers. And so there is that time when God begins to call people to himself and they begin to seek God. But the third category is in a crisis. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have one of the most marvelous pictures of God. And it begins with Isaiah, the prophet, saying, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, it was usually one king followed by a good king, or bad king followed by a good king, good king followed by a bad king. And, and Isaiah was a prophet in the king's court. And so the next king, if he was a bad king, he would execute Isaiah. Interestingly enough, when he got clarity of vision, was at a time of crisis. 
And he saw God in his power, in his beauty, in his majesty when everything was falling apart. And I find that to be true for many people. It's when we lose everything that we discover his goodness. Some of you have heard the story of Chris's mother's illness. She was deathly ill for two years, and, and really I didn't know whether she would ever be herself again or whether or not she would ever live. And, of course, I prayed. I prayed every night. I prayed every morning. I prayed for my wife. This is, this is a woman that I met on my first day in college, and I was saved by the grace of God, and she's just a sweetheart. She, just, I mean, she might be watching. You just ignore this. But she's she just, in her very nature, she is a kind, she's everything I'm not. And, 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 and you know, I can remember, why not me? Why not me? God, why is she suffering? No, God, God, she, she's, the, she's the one, she's, she's been my anchor. I've seen Jesus more evident in her life than I've seen it. She's the one that prays with passion. She's the one that lingered at the church for hours and hours and hours when Chris was far away from the Lord, crying out to God, Oh God, bring our son into your grace and your mercy. She's the one that wept the tears, not me. And strangely enough, it is, it is in that valley and in that darkness that I found the goodness of God. I found that his strength was sufficient. I found that his, his peace is perfect. And so, so sometimes it's, it's, it's a matter of God bringing us into a place of crisis. And I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, when I see men and women being slaughtered on the streets of any city, it, it brings me in my heart into a place of crisis. It breaks me. And it's not breaking me because I'm good, because I'm not. It's breaking me because I know God's heart is weeping. When he says, at one time, he brought the world into judgment in Genesis chapter 5 because of the violence and the wickedness of men. I know that it means that he will eventually again bring the world into judgment. One day all of us in the church will be crying out for his judgment to come, his justice to come. And when his judgment comes, it will not be that we will be recalled in fear, but it will be because you and I will actually begin to say hallelujah because all the wars will stop. All the children uh, who are starving to death in the world today, we're, we're told we'll be going into a period of famine in the world today. That will stop because the king of glory has come and the world is being reigned. By. And that's something we look forward to, but it's not now. And then the, 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 third, the third way that I've learned to have clarity and purity of heart is by abiding in Christ. That's just, that's just walking daily. With Christ, having Christ be our all in all, filling our minds and our hearts, turning away from those things that would keep us or obscure us from what God is doing in the world. So look, look, at, look at the transformation that begins uh, in verse 20, and we'll finish. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you would despise their image. Very little, very little more has he has to say about the wicked. It's just like all of a sudden he knows their time is coming and their time is done. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was a fool and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up to glory. 
Whom do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But, but for me, God, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell all about all that you do. This morning, I want to give you three takeaways as we face a time of darkness and turmoil in the world that I think are important for us to give the answers to our own hearts and to those in the world when they ask the question, if God is good, then why is the world so bad? Number one is this. This is the first takeaway. God is always with his people in the darkness. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray for deliverance, don't we? And that's okay. But God is more likely to go with you through the valley than he is to rescue you from the valley. And when we see, when we see like in the book of Hebrews, how some mothers had children raised from the dead, we say, hallelujah, God delivered them from the valley. But then there's that transitional verse in the book of Hebrews where it says, and there were others who wandered in deserts all their lives looking for a city. There were those who were sown in two. Both walked by faith. Both experienced the goodness and the presence of God. God has promised his church and God has promised all those who would get into the ark of Jesus Christ that no matter what the world brings, that God is going to bring justice and he's going to be with us in any adversity, any dilemma, any time, any war, any problems that you and I might face. So when it comes to the Ukraine, when it comes to whether or not you and I are going to be evaporated in a nuclear war, which there's unbelievable talk about that the reality is no matter what happens God's with us he's with us he will not forsake you he will give you strength he will give you a song in the night he will give you joy because that is the very nature of God and God will one day deliver the earth from its travail and the suffering and the evil will be judged Number two is this. The second truth I want you to carry home is that in this age, in this time, you and I are called to be light. Jesus said it this way. Hey, Jesus lived in a wicked generation. And he said, look, as my children, as followers of God, what you're called to do is to be light in darkness. Now, light in darkness means the people don't have to stumble any longer because there's now illumination. But if you're like a rotten kid when I was, when I was a teenager, I mean, when somebody turned on the lights, that was a bad thing. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because, you, you know. Well, light, evilness, darkness does not like to be exposed. The world is never going to like it when you call it for what it's doing. But Jesus said, during this generation, the reason that he's called us into the ark is so that you and I might have a clarion call that it's time to come. 
It's time to come to God because God is our hope. God is our resource. There's a reason he saved me. There's a reason he saved me for myself. And so that that is that I might be his hope and his glory in a perishing generation. The church has a purpose. You have a reason. And that is to be the light in a hard generation. And the last takeaway I want to give you this morning is God's judgment on evil is coming. The Bible ends with Revelations chapter 21, the great white throne judgment. And what we may see transpiring on our television sets today, we may think, well, people are getting away from it. The answer of the Bible is resoundingly, no, they will not. No, they will not. Dictators, murderers, people of evil will be judged. Now, to some degree, we're all in that category. Again, if not in our actions, but in our hearts. But that's why we've come to Jesus, because Jesus, on the cross, that blood has forgiven us. It has cleansed us. It is separating us, separated us from a sin, so that God looks at us as pure because of what he's done, not because of us. I love in Ezekiel chapter 33, even in the Old Testament, uh, God is answering the question, why not judgment today? And he says in Ezekiel 33, Now as for you, son of man, he's talking to the prophet, say to the house of Israel, you've said our transgressions and our sins are heavy on us. We are wasting away because of them. That's what sin does. It destroys us. How can we survive? And this is the answer of God. Tell them as I live the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why should you die? And then as we wonder sometimes why God is delaying judgment, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Church, I want to invite you this morning to be the compassionate, caring hearts of God. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, but not today. Today, it's mercy. Today, it's mercy. Today, it's mercy. But the rain is falling, and the waters are rising. And the darkness is coming on. And the church of Jesus Christ is the only light and hope that a dying generation has. What does it mean? Pray. Pray. Every time I see these news articles, every time I hear that little child, my heart weeps. I pray for him. No, I don't walk around in constant depression, but I care because I know my Father in heaven, he's weeping. So I pray. Secondly, act. 
my wife and I have a certain degree of resources and finances that God has given to us, and we, 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 we sacrificially try to give to the poor. We sacrificially give to, to causes that help feed the children. We have sacrificially given to refugees uh, in the Ukraine. There's a tendency for our hearts over a period of time just to get used to it and to get, get, go on and just kind of move on with our lives. But God has called for us to not only pray, but he's called for us, for the church of Jesus Christ, he's called for us to act. We, we do not have the authority to preach the mercy of God if we do not live the mercy of God. If you and I are not actively demonstrating that we care for this lost and dying world that we live in, then we have no way, no reason, no absolute authority to say that God loves you. They must see the tears in our eyes and they must know that our hearts are broken as we represent the King of glory. I, I, I'm, I, this, is, this, the end, this is the end of the answer. Judgment is coming. And when it comes, you, you will not be living your life in fear of his judgment. You will be saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. You will grow tired of those children dying. You will grow tired of heart disease. You will grow tired of cancer. You will stand at, at the edge of so many graves of so many people that have died. You will grow tired. Your heart will cry out. And when God brings judgment on the evil in the world, you will stand before him on that day and you will say, thank you, the madness had to stop. But not today. Today is the day of hope. Today is the day where you go out to the places where you work and you live, to your children, to your grandchildren, and you proclaim the good works of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God to give them hope. Bow your heads. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to do something I don't normally do anymore. I'm going to put you on the spot. For those of you that are here who are followers of Christ, this is your call to action. I'm going to pray a prayer of commitment that my ears and my heart will be attentive to the mercies of God. I'm going to ask you to stand in a minute. And what I'm asking you to stand for is you're going to commit yourselves to God. And that's a, that's a holy and a somber moment. And this is, this is your commitment. Number one is I will not allow my heart to be hardened. I will not become accustomed to the evil in the world. Number two is I will pray. Every time God brings this to my mind, to every child who suffers, to every mom or dad who lose, loses a child, to every husband or wife who's now alone, I will pray because I believe the King of glory is able. I will pray. But number three is that's not enough. Father, I will act. I don't know what it means, but I will act. I, the right words at the right time, encouragement, 
the resources God has given to me, whether it's a dollar or $10,000 to the people who are suffering, the millions of people in Europe who are homeless, to the, to the hundreds of thousands of children in Africa that are dying of starvation. Oh God, let not my heart be hardened. Let me be obedient. Let me walk in step with the Spirit. Let my heart weep. Let me move as you move. And the last thing is, Lord, I'm going to look for every opportunity to step beside somebody and speak hope. Lord, give me eyes to see. Who's in my life who needs hope? Who, who's depressed? Who's desperate? Who's struggling with what's going on in the world? Oh, God, let my hand be a hand of kindness and my words be words of encouragement. Four things. If you're willing to say this morning, I, I want that to be true in my life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you stand where you're at. I'm going to pray for you. Just don't, no, no pressure, please. Just those who are willing to do this. Father, I grow so tired of seeing evil prevail. Even the tendency in my own heart to harden myself or to watch or listen to things that do not draw people into the kingdom of God. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that for those of us this morning that are before you, Lord, that you give us the strength to remember that you'd give us the purity and the clarity of mind to see what is coming and what is. That even as the darkness is creeping, that the light of heaven is prevailing. Oh God, we want to be, we want to be a part of that. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we know, we know we are not the light of the world, but Father, you have chosen to demonstrate your light through us. We're, we're like the moon reflecting the glory of the sun. And God, we need grace. We need mercy. We need help. We need forgiveness in order to accomplish that task. But Father, for this reason, you have raised up the church of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Let us be the light and the glory and the hope and the love of God in this generation. Oh God, let us not sleep. Tenderize our hearts. Oh, may the presence of Christ be seen by our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors. For our neighbors who are hopeless and have cancer or have disease, oh, Father, may we pray with them and love on them. May they see tears of compassion in our hearts. God, enough, enough of the hardness, enough of the coldness. Oh, soften our hearts with the wine and the oil of your Holy Spirit. Lord, time is running out. Justice is coming and we say hallelujah. But not today. Today is a day of mercy. Raise your church to its mission and its task for your glory. In Jesus' name.
Let's stand as we sing a song of closure this morning.